Well, good day, friends, and welcome to the online ministry of St. Augustine's Anglican Church in Inverell. My name's Matt. It's great that you're watching with us today. Uh, today's service has been prepared for Sunday, the 1st of May, 2022. Friends, let's hear uh, from God as we begin this sentence of scripture. Make a joyful noise to God, all the earth. Sing to the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Saviour God, how awesome are your deeds. Great is your power. Let's pray. God, our Father, may we look forward with hope to our resurrection. For you have made us your sons and daughters and restored the joy of our youth. We ask this. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. We now go to a time of praise. Sings my soul, my soul. 
Well, friends, we come now to the ministry of God's Word. And so I'll invite you to uh, take a moment and read through our Bible passages for today. Our psalm is Psalm 146. Our New Testament reading comes from Romans 3, uh, verses 21 to 26. And our Old Testament reading, which I'll be speaking from in a moment, uh, comes from Obadiah. Uh, it's one chapter, just 21 verses. So uh, let me encourage you to pause and read those Bible passages, especially Obadiah. Uh, read it out loud, read it with those you're with, uh, and pause the video while you do that. And then we'll come to think about it uh, together in a moment. Well, friends, let's pray as we come to think about God's word together now. Heavenly Father, uh, please guide us through your word now. Uh, please quieten our hearts. Speak to us by your spirit. Help us to see you and hear you clearly and respond in the right way. Amen. One family that I've had the pleasure uh, of knowing a number of years ago were the Daher family. The Daher family, they came to Australia from Syria. Uh, and they were such a delight to be around. They were always full of joy, always had a smile on their face. But the Daher family... They didn't come to Australia because it's the land of opportunity. No, they came to Australia as refugees, leaving everything behind them. You see, a number of years ago, uh, ISIS militants, they attacked their city in Syria, and so they needed to flee for their lives. One of the guys had trouble hearing, and I found out it was because they'd had rockets hit the side of their house while they were still inside. They had to flee. And this is how Christians are being treated in other parts of the world. Now, I really enjoyed getting to know the Dahat family. But as they were forced out, forced to rebuild their lives, I couldn't help but feel a sense of injustice on their behalf. Now, we're not from Syria. Uh, I'm not at least. And I don't know everything that's going on in your life. But I think we too feel a sense of injustice as we deal with the hardships and heartaches of, the, of being a part of this world. Why, God, am I going through this kind of trauma? And as we deal with the rubbish that we cop, I mean, it can be all too easy to ask the question, if there is a God, how can I trust him when I can't see justice? I mean, looking at Obadiah today, this very question is something that's on the original audience uh, mind, no doubt. Now, this is the smallest book in the Old Testament, just 21 verses, and it contains words from God about, of judgment uh, for one of Israel's enemies, almost 600 years before Jesus was even born. Now, this was at a time where God's people, they drifted away from trusting God. And yet, despite warning after warning that God had given them, they didn't turn back to him. And so God allowed the Babylonians to come in from the east and take their people, to rise up against them, invade their cities, taking many exiles. And for those that are left, they are left with almost nothing. And so you can imagine how the Israelites were feeling. That's who these words are for. And they're meant to be words of hope for a people who are, well, big time struggling, a people experiencing trauma. But for the most of the text, it's not even addressed to them. It's not addressed to Israel. Verse 1 tells us that these are the words from God about some small nation called Edom. Now, we're not told much about Edom straight away. But as we continue to work through the passage, we'll begin to discover who they are. And as we read what God says about this nation, we also discover much about his character as well. 
And the first thing we learn about God here is something that, well, something that many people don't like to believe about God. Something, something that even some churches will deny about his character. What we learn is, point one, God judges the wicked. So in verse one, we find out that uh, this, is, this is a message from God against uh, Edom. And that in God's sovereign plan, the nations around them are going to get ready to rise up against war, uh, in war against them. And then in verse 2, we hear what God begins to say. Verse 2, he says, See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. Now, this is sounding pretty heavy straight away, isn't it? We'll come back to verses 3 and 4 a bit later. But have a look now at verse uh, number 5 with me. He says about Edom, If thieves came to you at night, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? God is saying that even in a bad situation, even in a terrible situation where raiders come in and take everything, Edom, like, you'd still have something left. But in verses 6 to 9, we're told that for Edom, no, it's going to be far worse than that. They aren't just going to be raided. You look down the list and we see they're going to be pillaged for all their treasures. Their friends and allies, they're going to turn against them and trap them. They're educated and wise people. They'll be wiped out. Their army will be decimated. These guys will have nothing left. And this is God's judgment against them. And if it's not clear already, I mean, the second half of verse 10 tells us that they will be covered with shame and destroyed forever. Now, I love a good war movie. Uh, I enjoy watching them. Uh, and in just about any war movie, you'll, you'll see what happens is one side ends up victorious and the other side, they're defeated. And now that the defeated side, there's usually something they have left. Like no matter how defeated they are, usually they've got some, some wounded soldiers or their families back home, their homes themselves, or even just the ruins of their country. When humans declare war, there's going to be destruction, right? We see that in Ukraine at the moment, but it's not a total destruction. But that stands in contrast to what we see here going to happen to this country of Edom. God makes it clear that their destruction is going to be complete. It's a terrible situation beyond compare. And now reading what's going to happen to them, this question of who is Edom? It should be a burning one inside us. We want to know what they've done that's brought God's judgment on them like this. Seeing the severity of this, it makes me start to wonder, have I ever done something to deserve that kind of judgment? Could I do something to anger God like this? Well, now there is, of course, a reason for their judgment. And in the next section, we find that it's because of Edom's wicked actions. Their wicked actions, which spring from a wicked heart. And it's here that we also find out who they are. Now, up to this point, God has been saying how he's going to judge them. But now here, when we get to verse 10, God's begin, God begins to list the indictments against them. They will be shamed and destroyed because, verse 10, because of the violence against your brother, Jacob. All right, now this is Israel that God is referring to as Jacob at this point. And in a handful of verses time, he'll refer to Edom as Esau. Now, Jacob and Esau, 
They were actually two men, two brothers that were alive about 1500 years before this point. And they were sons of Isaac, the grandsons of Abraham, right? Now you're starting to know, to know who they are. Uh, Abraham, who God made some big covenant promises to. God promised that he would bless Abraham's descendants. And it was through Jacob's line, rather than Esau's, that God chose to keep these promises. Now, both of these families, both Jacob and Esau, they eventually became their own nations. Jacob's line became known as Israel, okay, God's covenant people through the Old Testament. Whereas Esau's line became known as Edom, and that's who we have here. And in their joint history, there's no small amount of bickering, of rivalry and, and fighting between these two nations. It's a bitterness that stems back to the brothers themselves. And here, God is accusing Edom of acting wickedly against their brother nation, Israel. Have a look at verse 11. He says, On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates, and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. As we read this together with verse 12, we see that as God was judging Israel for ignoring, uh, for ignoring him, and, for, and he gives them over to the Babylonians, Babylonians rather, what was Edom doing? Well, some of the Edomites, they stood back, watching, gloating, boasting, rejoicing over their brother and the misfortune that was happening to them. But that's not all. In verses 13 to 14, they don't just stand back. They then, after Babylon, march through the gates themselves and they gloat some more as they look around. Then they start taking whatever they like. And they even end up killing and selling off some of the fleeing refugees. Edom wasn't standing back watching it all unfold. They took a cheap shot. Now, when I was young, uh, I'd often wrestle, uh, usually in the lounge with my brother. And wrestling with siblings, it can often become rough. You might know that. Uh, you can hurt each other. It can bring up some grudges. And, well, perhaps that was the case for you uh, as you were growing up. Uh, but if the local bully was to one day grab your brother, to beat him up and to throw him to the ground, to take his lunch money, what would you do when your brother's in distress like that? Surely you'd put away your differences, wouldn't you? Surely you'd at least offer him a hand and help him up off the ground. What does Edom do here for Israel? No, they don't help them up. They opt for the cheap shot. When their brother's on the ground in distress, Edom kicks them right between the legs and then raids their pockets for whatever else is valuable. And God says to them, Edom, you were just like Babylon. Yeah, they were just like the Babylonians that acted in wickedness. And so now, with their wicked actions laid out, Look back up with me uh, to verses 3 and 4, because we see not only their actions, but their character. God says in verse 3, The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who, look, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? Well, Edom doesn't only have a lofty position physically as they live up in the hills and the mountains. 
but they also have a lofty position in their heads as they consider themselves better than all the nations around them, better than their brother nation, Israel. They are filled with pride and they boast, who can bring me down to the ground? And look at God's response in verse 4. Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Well, their wicked actions have sprung from their wicked hearts. And so God is judging them because of this. He will bring them down. Now, I've never done anything that wicked before and likely neither have you. But there are still things in my life that I'm ashamed of. Uh, Still ways that I've treated people. Things that I've said and done that I don't want you to know about. And probably, like most people, I still think of myself as being a pretty good guy. But after considering the Edomites here, it's probably fair to say that, like them, those things that I've thought, those things that I've done, they actually show a wickedness that's within my own heart. I wonder what the secret thoughts and actions of your heart say about you. See, we're not basically just good people who do say and think bad things. No, the diagnosis is far worse. It's the wickedness of our hearts that's the issue. But God says that he will bring judgment and make things right. See, we're not basically good people who just do say and think bad things. No, no, the problem is far worse. The problem starts in our hearts. Now, God here, he says that he will bring judgment and he'll make things right. Wicked Edom aren't going to get away with what they've done. We have a God who promises justice. And that's what we see continue into the next part. We find that judgment is a reality for everyone. But so is deliverance out of that judgment. Look at verse 15. He says, The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Now the day of the Lord is a day that Israel are waiting for, a day when God will save and judge. And it's not just limited to to this country or the surrounding countries, but here he says the day of the Lord is near for all nations. It's for all people. Now right now, We don't always see justice in our world, do we? In fact, I think justice can often feel like the exception rather than the rule. But God promises that a time will come when all wickedness, when all evil will be dealt with once and for all with a perfect and an appropriate justice. We get a small taste of that as we see what's going to happen to Edom here. But that's not the end of the matter. Because accompanying God's judgment, right alongside it, in verse 17, we see God's grace. Have a look at verse 17. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. Now Israel at the time, they were experiencing God's judgment for ignoring him. But now we're given a picture of how he's going to restore them. Restore them not because they deserve it, no, no, no. But simply because he's chosen to show his grace and mercy to them. 
And we find in the rest of this single chapter that he's not just going to restore them uh, to their land again, but now their borders will extend. The once excluded parts of their nation will become included parts and God's people from there will reign. It's a message of hope for a broken and downcast group of exiles from Israel. And he finishes with verse 21 saying, Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. And as you read uh, more of the Old Testament, it's clear that yes, Edom do get justice. In fact, before we get to the New Testament, uh, in the very, the very last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, the, the, it starts by saying that, yeah, Edom are totally wiped out. There's nearly nothing left of them at this point. And yes, we also want to say that God's people were restored to Jerusalem, to Mount Zion, and their temple was rebuilt. You see, while God announces justice here against sin and wickedness, he also expresses grace to his people. And that's something we find consistent and unchanging because God is the one in control. As we scan over the book of Obadiah, we're left with no doubt who's in control here, aren't we? It's not, well, it's not the Babylonians. It's not Edom. It's certainly not Israel. No, God is in control. We so often like to think that we're in control of things, that we're in control of our own lives. But God is making it clear here that this is his world. That our lives are in his hands. Now, why can uh, battered and bruised exiles of Israel have hope in their current trauma? Well, it's because they have these promises of a faithful God who's in control of all things. He's promised grace deliverance, restoration to these people, and that Edom aren't going to get away with what they've done. Now, if you were an Israelite exile living five to six hundred years before Jesus, this was a great message of hope. But we're not ancient Israelites, are we? God's message of justice and deliverance might be good news for them, but how is this little obscure book in the Old Testament meant to be a help or an encouragement to us? The answer, because these are the words of our unchanging God. And because they they point us to a deliverance that's made possible for us. Now here we've seen clearly that God is a God of justice. In verse 15, we see that he declares the day of the Lord is near for all nations, for all people. And a part of us says, Yes, yes, we want that. We want things to be made right. We want him to deal with the wicked actions of people like ISIS, who who attacked my friend's house with rockets just for being Christians. We want him to punish wickedness like he does here with Edom. But the truth is, we are all like Edom. We're all like Edom in that we've done things that we aren't or that we shouldn't be proud of. Things that when it comes down to it, are just plain wicked, whether towards God or towards someone else. And like Edom, our actions come out of our corrupted and wicked hearts. We too deserve God's judgment on that final day. But that doesn't mean that we are without hope. Because just as God is continually a God of justice, so also is he continually a God of 
deliverance and mercy and grace. And these promises of deliverance here, they aren't just for the ancient nation uh, of Israel. In fact, when we think about it, the, the picture that's described here, it all sounds rather like a, an idyllic view of the new Jerusalem. We want to say, yes, God's people were restored to, to Jerusalem. It was kind of made new again. And the people came out of exile and they rebuilt it and rebuilt the temple. But the restoration, historically, doesn't live up to the heights that God speaks of here. There weren't deliverers returning to Jerusalem as much as there were kind of straggling survivors, freed survivors that then usually found themselves under the thumb of some other nation. They never completely fulfilled this picture of a, of a renewed city that we have here in Obadiah. So to find the true fulfillment of these promises of hope, we now need to turn to the New Testament. You see, God told the people through Obadiah that verse 21, deliverers would go up on Mount Zion. And then in verse 17, that on it, there would be deliverance. And this is something that we see fulfilled in a greater sense at that first Easter. As Jesus himself went up Mount Zion, went up to Jerusalem and dying on a cross, he takes God's judgment against our wickedness on himself. See, we have a deliverer who went up Mount Zion for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in him, we see both God's justice and his mercy come together. Jesus is our ultimate deliverer on Mount Zion. Remember last week, Luke 24, when I, when I showed you that Jesus says all of the Bible, it's about him? Well, here you go. And, I mean, the, the future fulfillment of this restoration in Jesus was no doubt hidden to Obadiah. <clears throat> but God showed him that deliverance would be a reality on Zion, in Jerusalem. And in the New Testament, we also see that this true fulfillment of Zion, it's not just a physical city. No, it's a spiritual city. Listen to what the writer to the Hebrews says about those who have faith in Jesus. He says in chapter 12, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. This is the new city, the new rebuilt Zion, Jerusalem, a heavenly reality. And then in Revelation 21, John picks up this theme of the new Jerusalem and he says, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning. No more crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Friends, as we experience trauma, as we feel like things are unfair in our lives, as we burn for a sense of, with a sense of injustice for what goes on to some Christians around the world, like the Daher family that I knew, in these things we can trust God because this is a promise of ultimate justice and because we have a God who is abounding in love and deliverance for those who turn to Jesus. We can trust him because he's, in, because he's in control. We can trust him because he is faithful. And now I just want to finish by, by saying three quick points of, of application for us. First of all, God's judgment 
and his deliverance aren't something we should take lightly. Being saved out of God's judgment is something that only comes through knowing, through having a relationship with his son, our deliverer, the Lord Jesus. And so if you don't know Jesus, if you're not sure what his death means, if you haven't given your life to him, this is something that you should explore. This is something that you need to do. Secondly, we need to have a right view of ourselves. We saw that Edom's big problem, it wasn't just with what they'd done, but it was with their hearts. They were filled with pride, is what we were told. Pride which so easily distorts and blinds you to the truth. I mean, we love to build ourselves up. We love to even give the occasional humble brag. But 1 Peter 5, 5, God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. Now, we shouldn't have a diminished view of ourselves, but a right view. A view that sees our worth and value, and also models the humility of our Lord Jesus. Uh, thirdly, <clears throat> we also need to have a right view of God. Now, things often don't seem fair or right in our lives, and we feel this tension when, when things aren't going well for us. We might think, how can I trust God when things don't just seem just? Now, I'm sure you've wrestled with that. I have. I want you to remember, though, that as God's words about Eden remind us, that our trust in God, it, it shouldn't be based on our circumstances or the circumstances of other people outside of us. But our trust in God should be based on who he is and the grace that he's both promised and revealed through his son, Jesus. A promise of those wonderful words that I read before of Revelation 21, where God himself will be with us and be our God. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more death for us, no more crying for us, no more pain for us, for the old order of things will have passed away. Friends, that is what God promises to us in Jesus. That is what should shape our outlook and where our hope should be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a God who is over all things, that nothing in our world happens outside of your plan or control. Father, thank you that we see you are a God of justice. Lord, we long for a day when you'll put all things right. Father, help us in that to see our own predicament and to cast ourselves on Jesus, to trust in him, our deliverer, who died taking what we deserve so that we get what we don't deserve, your, your grace and mercy. Father, help us to live our lives in light of that, to set our hearts on Jesus and not be filled with pride, to see you, Lord, uh, as the one who we need to turn to and the one that gives us a great hope, not only now, but even more than that, a great hope and promise for the future. Father, we give you thanks for these things we've seen today. In Jesus' name, amen. We go now to a time of praise.
come now to a time of prayer. And so I invite you to pause for a moment and spend some time reflecting on your week, uh, reflecting on what God has shown you uh, even through Obadiah today, uh, and be praying for these things. Uh, don't not pray. Uh, there'll be a little screen that'll come up in a moment's time uh, with some helpful things to uh, to uh, help you be aware of some great things to be praying for, things for our world, uh, things about our church and our vision, uh, things for ourselves. And so I invite you in a moment just to pause the video and be praying either by yourself if you're watching by yourself or with those that you're watching with. Uh, friends, at the end of um, the video, there'll be a short slide with some bank details. If you'd love to support the work of St. Augustine's Church, if you'd love to glorify God and praise him with your wallet uh, as well as your life, uh, that's, a, that's an easy way that you can do that. Uh, that's a right response to, to knowing God and seeing his grace. And so I invite you to do that. Uh, but let's now have a short, short time of prayer and then we'll go to praise again.
Well, friends, as we finish now, be reminded uh, of a great joy, ha- joy we have as we know Jesus uh, through these words uh, from Hebrews 12. He says, But you, Christians, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. Our friends, go in peace uh, with the knowledge of uh, this great hope we have through our Lord and Saviour Jesus. I'll see you next week.